Thank you. Well, do please keep your Bible open and if you're with us for the first time, you'll see an outline on the inside of the white bulletin, which will give you some idea of where we're going in the next few minutes. Uh, But first of all, let's uh, ask the Lord to be with us as we look at his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, providing everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. So come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each of us might be conscious that we are listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus, calling us now to follow him into the future. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, it was the 21st of April this year, uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, St. Sebastian's Church in Colombo was packed full for the most important festival in the Christian calendar. Uh, At 8.45am the service was just beginning and uh, a man walked in off the street and no one really paid him very much attention because he took out his cell phone and it looked like he was going to film the service. But seconds later he detonated a suicide vest More terrorist attacks followed in Colombo, Sri Lanka, in two churches and three hotels. And 30 minutes later, 259 people were dead, including 45 children, and 500 people were injured. The question, of course, in an incident like that is why? How are we to understand not just that particular attack, but countless other acts of violence uh, on God's people. Uh, If you're with us for the first time, the the book of Revelation was written towards the end of the first century uh, to real people facing real circumstances. And it was written with a very practical objective because these people were suffering Christians. They were being persecuted for their faith. And you see, the book of Revelation is encouraging them to persevere in the faith, keeping their eyes focused on what God is going to do in the future. Because the day is coming when he is going to make a perfect world for all who trust in Christ. One of the ways the book does that, one of the ways it gets its message across, is by revealing hidden realities. That is to say, things that we couldn't possibly discover for ourselves, things we would never know unless God himself told us. And it does that by means of a number of very powerful images in the book, revealing to us what is actually going on in heaven this morning. So back in chapter 4, you may remember, we saw that there is a throne in heaven. It speaks of the sovereignty of God. However difficult things might get here on earth, God is in control. 
And then in chapter 5, we saw a slain lamb standing in the centre of the throne, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And we discovered, didn't we, that the meaning of that extraordinary picture is that Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is actually the most powerful influence in the universe today. Why is that? Well, because in chapter 5 we also saw that in heaven there is a scroll or a book and it's the book of destiny. It contains God's unchangeable, detailed plan of salvation and judgment. But you remember those plans could only be carried out if the book is opened. If the book is not opened, well, there'll be no salvation for God's people, no coming of God's kingdom, and no hope for the human race. And so the great question in chapter 5 was, is there anybody out there who is worthy to open God's book? Is there anybody who's equal to the task of carrying out God's plans and fulfilling all his promises? And after what seemed to us like an agonising delay, uh, the people in heaven uh, rose up and they cried out to the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's where we got to. And now this morning in chapter 6, the seals that kept that book closed are opened one by one. Six of the seven opened in this chapter. And after the the very striking picture of the victorious Jesus in chapters 4 and 5, I think when we come to chapter 6, I think we're expecting to hear that the Christian life is basically fairly simple and straightforward. And after all, Jesus is on the throne. Instead, we're introduced to two overwhelming challenges that all of us have to face. Suffering and justice. At some point, every thoughtful person, and certainly every Christian, wants a satisfactory explanation for those two things. So, what does Christianity have to say about suffering and justice. Firstly, suffering. It's all around us. It dominates the news. For all I know, it might be dominating your life. This morning, what does Christianity have to say about suffering? Well, in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6, the first four seals are opened. And in these verses, we learn that suffering is first of all expected and second, that it is under control. First of all, it's expected. In verse 1, the Lamb opens the first of the seals and immediately we're introduced to the famous four horsemen of the Apocalypse and they ride out into history unleashing terrible, terrible suffering as they go. The imagery here comes from the Old Testament. John isn't starting from scratch. Uh, In the book of Zechariah, chapter 6, there are four horses with different colours. 
And you may remember from a previous study, we said that in the book of Revelation, John is teaching New Testament truth in Old Testament language. But he adapts the Old Testament to suit his purpose. He isn't just quoting it, he's adding to it. And here are these four horsemen. The first is there in verse 2. Let's look down, make sure we can see it in our Bibles. I looked, says John, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Some people have wondered if this perhaps might be the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because in chapter 19 of the book, Jesus is pictured on a white horse. But I don't think it can be him here. Because the whole sense of chapter 6 is that these four horsemen are malevolent. They're evil beings who unleash appalling suffering in the world. So rather, I think that the rider on this horse represents the spirit of imperialism. So you'll notice in chapter, in verse 2, he's got a bow in his hand, which is a weapon. He's also got a crown on his head. He seems to be a symbol of military aggression. And we're told explicitly that he is a conqueror bent on conquest. So think for a moment of the horrors that we've seen unleashed across the world by powerful leaders who want to extend their empires. And the first readers of Revelation would immediately have thought of Rome, because just a few years before this book was written in 66 AD, the uh, Romans had crushed a rebellion in Judea and Galilee. And very likely, many of the first readers of this book in western Turkey would have been refugees. That is to say, Jewish Christians running away from Israel and the devastation that Rome had caused back home. Just as today, I guess, many Syrian Christians have become refugees in Turkey and beyond. But this rider has been riding ever since. With the Crusaders in the 12th century, with Genghis Khan in the 14th century, with Hitler and Stalin in the 20th century, and with Islamic State in the 21st century. Verse 3. The second seal is opened. And this time a red horse emerges. Verse 4. This rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. At first he he looks to be very similar to the first rider, but there's a very important difference. He has a sword, but notice he doesn't wield it himself. He gives it to others. And he encourages them to kill one another. And I think we can think of him as the spirit of revolution, of civil unrest, And once again, what appalling misery he's caused down the ages. Syria we've mentioned, but Afghanistan, Iraq, Sudan, northern Nigeria, people dying every day. It's so routine, the papers don't even mention it half the time. 
The third is a black horse in verse 5. The rider has a pair of scales in his hands. And he is the spirit of economic depression. Notice that food is scarce. It's being rationed. And the scales point to the, the rationing that happens in a season of economic downturn and hardship. And you'll notice in verse 6 that John hears a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and don't damage the oil and the wine. What's he saying? He's saying, just to get by and have enough wheat for one person for one day, that's going to cost you a whole day's wages. And if you've got a family to feed, well, you've got to make do with a cheaper diet and that's barley. But again, it's going to cost you a day's wages. So the picture is, it's not a devastating famine. There's still oil and wine, which, by the way, in those days were not considered to be luxuries. There's just enough food to get by, but it will cost you pretty much everything you've got to buy it. And the result is there's no spare money for anything else. And that, of course, is a reality for millions and millions of people in our world this morning, including here in South Africa. So a recent survey said that one-third of all children in Hauteng and the Free State are physically stunted as a result of chronic malnutrition. And that's hardly surprising because in the same survey, 35% of pregnant women said they hadn't been able to afford to buy food for at least five days before they were interviewed. And then the fourth horse, in verse 8, is described as pale. Interesting word, the word in the original gives us our English word chlorine. So this horse has a kind of sickly green colour. You might say the colour of a dead body, of a corpse. And presumably that's why the rider here is named Death. And trotting just behind him is his ally and friend Hades, which is the place of the dead, or as we might say, the grave. And together at the end of verse 8, they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, of course, everybody, we know everybody's going to die. We know that. But it seems that this horse and his rider represent those people who die an untimely death because of warfare or famine or disease. Now, can you see that when we first read about these four horsemen in Revelation 6, they, they seem rather mysterious and remote. But once we understand what they represent, they are all too familiar, aren't they? The spirit of imperialism and revolution and economic depression and death. And they've been riding across the world for centuries and they will continue to do so until the Lord Jesus returns. Suffering is expected. But secondly, suffering is under control. I wonder if you notice that these horses are not acting independently. 
They're only released when the Lamb opens the seals and when the four living creatures around the throne of God give the command, come. Any power they might have is given to them. Notice this. So at the end of verse 2, can we all see it? The first rider was given a crown. In verse 4, the second rider was given power. The obvious question is why? I mean, if this is all under control, if these horses only ride out by divine command, why? And we're confronted straight away, aren't we, with the the question of suffering. It's a question everybody asks some time or other. Put simply, the question is this. If God is in control and he allows these things to happen, does he really care? Alternatively, if he is loving and yet these things happen, well, perhaps he isn't really in control at all. And for multitudes of people, that question is not simply philosophical or theoretical. It's deeply personal. It's it's triggered by great pain, perhaps in your own life or the life of people that you love. Why? I should say that suffering is not just a question that Christians have to deal with. Everybody from every religion, every culture has to deal with this question. They need an explanation for suffering. What does the atheist have to say in the light of suffering? Well, for them, why is actually a meaningless question. There are no reasons. The world just is. Stuff just happens. So the, the atheist Richard Dawkins says the why question is a universal delusion. That's what he says. When terrible things happen in their life or in the life of somebody they love, there's an almost irresistible desire to ask the why question, but according to Richard Dawkins and his disciples, it is a temptation that should be resisted because it is a nonsense question. In a world, he says, governed by scientific processes, These are meaningless questions because this is, according to him, a meaningless world. There is at bottom, he says, no design, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, that so very often those people who call themselves atheists find within their hearts that this why question just won't go away, will it? So why do people ask the why question? Sorry, a bit of a brain tease of that. It's a good question, isn't it? Why do people ask the why question? And the Bible says they ask the question because there is an instinct in everyone that tells us this world is not random or meaningless. There is meaning. There is purpose. And that instinct flows from the fact that we've been made in the image of God. We haven't simply emerged by chance as a result of coincidental scientific processes. We've been created by a loving God in his image. 
And there is a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And friends, let's be absolutely clear this morning that there are not two thrones in heaven. Uh, Some very sincere-minded Christians occasionally try and help God out with this by saying that when terrible things happen, uh, that's when the devil wins. Uh, As if the, the devil has got a throne in heaven and God has got a throne in heaven and we can never be quite sure who's going to win. The Bible says there is one throne in heaven. And everything that happens in our world happens by divine order. Now I know perfectly well that somebody will say, well if that's the case, that God can't be good. Sorry, the Bible replies no. God is very, very good. All that happens in this world is by divine order. But you see, there is a difference between what God allows and what he delights in. And mysteriously, he allows evil in the world without delighting in it and without being responsible for it. Now, we can't quite get our minds around that, can we? We want a clear, neat answer. I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't give it. What the Bible does is give us certain fixed points, unchanging truths. So it tells us that God is absolutely sovereign, that God is absolutely good and holy, that God is absolutely loving. And the answer to the why question lies somewhere between those fixed points. That God is not responsible for evil, he is absolutely good, but he's not taken by surprise by evil because he is sovereign. There are a few pointers uh, in various places in the Bible that give us clues as to why Almighty God might allow these four horsemen out into the world. They encourage us, I think, to see the suffering around us as an anticipation of the judgment of God on the last day. Or to put that another way, listen to this, suffering is God's way of showing us what it is like to live in a world that has rejected his son. Because, I mean, we have, haven't we? We crucified him. And God allows us to experience what it's like to live in a Christ-rejecting world, not out of bitterness or spite, but in order to bring us to our senses, like the prodigal son, so that we might repent and learn to depend on him. But there is still mystery here. I don't want to tie this up into a neat parcel. And as we grapple with the mystery, we must never lose sight of those two great realities in chapters 4 and 5. There is a throne in heaven. God is in control. We might not always understand what he's doing or why he's doing it, but he is in control. And chapter 5, the slain lamb is on the throne. So the God who is in control is not distant and remote and dispassionate. 
He suffered in the most extreme way possible precisely because he loves us. The uh, Russian novelist Dostoevsky became a Christian after gazing for four hours at a painting of the Lord Jesus Christ being taken down from the cross. And uh, sometime afterwards he said, I don't have all the answers to evil, but I do know love. Suffering is expected. Suffering is under control. But let's move on and consider the second theme in chapter 6, which is this theme of justice. See, the, the question why that is provoked by suffering is very close to the issue of justice. Because often we, we find ourselves suffering and we say it's not fair. Why has this happened to me? Why has this happened to him? It's not fair that we should be going through this. What does Christianity have to say about justice? Well, according to our passage, two things. It's, it's, it's wonderful, but it's also terrible. Justice is wonderful. The fifth seal is opened, and here we've got a picture of innocent suffering in verse 9. Can we all see verse 9 in our Bibles? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Friends, that was very, very raw for the first readers of John's book because many of them had known friends and family who had been with them in church one Sunday and the next Sunday morning, they weren't there. They'd been killed simply because of their their faith in Jesus and their witness to him. And what was true for them is still true for countless Christian communities around the world today. I discovered this week that a hundred years ago in the Middle East and North Africa 20% of the population were Christian. Today that figure is under 4%. There are fewer than 15 million Christians now in the Middle East and North Africa. And one journal I was reading said the persecution is so intense it ought to be called genocide. And that's why in verse 10 these martyrs cry out How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth, meaning unbelievers, and avenge our blood? I think it's important to realise that this is not a plea for personal vengeance. No, no, that they're crying out for God to mete out his justice. Many, many, many people in the world identify with that longing, don't they? We have an, an inbuilt instinct that cries out for justice. And you know, so often in our world it doesn't happen, does it? Two television programmes last year made the point. The first featured the problem of cyber sex in the Philippines. It was a documentary. Apparently young children in the Philippines are pimped to perform sexual acts on camera 
being directed by people all over the world. Apparently, they're paid to do this, although it became clear through the documentary that the money never reaches them. And the programme followed a team of detectives in the Philippines trying to track down these people. And after catching one of them in a room where there were many, many children, the detective said, you know, we hardly ever catch any of these people. And the trauma for those children is horrific. When they were rescued, they were taken to a a safe house, but as you can imagine, the damage goes very, very deep indeed. And the detective said that not only do they hardly ever catch the people who pimp the children in the Philippines, they never catch the thousands upon thousands of people around the world who pay for this thing. Hardly any of them are brought to justice. Justice? Where is it? The second documentary was called Something Like My Son the Jihadist. Featured a British lady, single parent, living in the UK. She had two sons. One of them in his late teens became a Muslim and he joined one of the more radical Muslim groups. He became a terrorist in Somalia. And the documentary followed this lady as uh, she received news from her son from time to time. And over time, she, she started to realise that the horrors and that the appalling things that he was doing, going into villages, finding out which children in the village were Christian, taking them out and killing them. And then one day, the, the news came through to her that in one of these attacks, her son had been killed. And she was filmed talking to her son's wife. They got married through an arranged marriage. And uh, this man's wife said through an interpreter, well, he's in paradise now. And the boy's mother said, and she, she, did, she described herself as not religious in any way at all. She said, no, he is not in paradise. He will burn in hell for what he's done. She said it without bitterness. She said, I love my son, but what he's done is horrific and it demands justice. But so often it doesn't happen, does it? You know that as well as I do. So it is wonderful, I think, in the Bible that justice will come. God tells us that. And that's why in verse 11 of our passage... The martyrs are wearing white robes, symbolising here not purity, but victory. The white robe signifies their victory in Christ. They are on the winning side. And they're told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So there's more suffering. There are going to be more martyrs. But one day it will come to an end and justice will be done. And I think that's wonderful. But it is also terrible. So we come to the opening of the sixth seal in verses 12 and 13. Just glance at them with me. 
What you've got here is a horrific picture of the Day of Judgment. Now, I don't think we're meant to take it literally, but John is giving us a symbolic picture using Old Testament language. There are several Old Testament passages that use very similar language to describe the judgment of the last day. I think probably the closest to this is Isaiah 34. You can look it up later. The sun turns black, the moon goes red, the stars fall out of the sky. You know, to the casual observer, some of your friends maybe, God sometimes appears weak. His people are killed, seems not to do anything. But on the day of judgment, no one will be thinking that God is weak. Sometimes in our world, the the rich and the powerful can use their influence, their privilege, to protect themselves from justice. We know all about that here in South Africa. But not on that day. Verse 15, look at verse 15. It's a shock. Then, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, verse 16, they called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Wrath. Kind of an old-fashioned word, isn't it? It simply means anger. But when it's applied to Almighty God, it's not a kind of fly-off-the-handle sort of anger. It's the flip side of his holiness. God loves what is good, but equally he, he hates what is evil. And when he sees it, he's angry. And I, for one, am very glad that we're living in a world where God hasn't simply folded his arms as if he's completely indifferent to the evil and the suffering that we see going on all around us. The abuse of women and children, the persecution of our brothers and sisters. I'm very glad that God cares about right and wrong and he gets angry when he sees evil. I'm glad about that. I think it's wonderful but it's terrible because the question in verse 17 is absolutely spot on when God is angry who can stand who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb by the way please notice that last phrase very important because the idea that some people have that the Old Testament is all about the wrath of God and the New Testament is all about the love of God that idea is completely wrong God has always been exactly the same. Absolutely good and holy, and therefore angry at sin, and absolutely loving in both the Old and the New Testaments. And here we have the most loving man who ever lived, the Lamb who died on the cross. And he is angry, faced with the wrath of God and the Lamb who 
can stand. I wonder if you ever think about the Day of Judgment. The Bible says that it is appointed for everyone to die once and face judgment. Everybody. Some of you, later this month, will be going to the GWC student graduation. It's a proud moment. Uh, The students wearing their gowns, their friends and family are all there, and some of you, no doubt, are going to win prizes for your hard work. But just imagine that instead of it being announced to the audience that, you know, you've got 100% in Hebrew or whatever it was, but instead of that, a screen is lowered on the stage and all your friends and your family and your fellow students get to see a picture, a video, of everything that you have said and thought and done. See, those skeletons in your past that you believe that uh, they were safely hidden, the back of the cupboard. No one's ever going to find out about those. They all come tumbling out on the screen. And not just the deeds, but your heart attitudes. Lust, greed, pride, selfishness. And a heart that struts around as if it's God, worshipping things, created things rather than the creator. See, that is what the day of judgment is going to be like. All, all will be revealed. So on that day, who can stand? Can you? Let's get, however, both ideas absolutely clear in our mind from this passage. The horror of facing the wrath of the Lamb, please God, may that not happen to anyone here, and yet the huge comfort that it brings. Why? Why was the Lamb slain? Not for any sins that he had committed, because he he was sinless. No, he, he died as a sacrifice for the sin of others. And the Gospels tell us, don't they, that when he died, he he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I remember as a very young Christian thinking, oh dear, it sounds rather like Jesus has lost his faith. Until somebody pointed out to me that actually what Jesus was doing was quoting Psalm 22 verse 1. And in case you didn't know it, whenever Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he is always fulfilling it. So he was saying, I am forsaken. That's why I'm dying. To be cut off from the Heavenly Father. Not because he deserved it, but because he loves us. He was forsaken by God, so you and I don't have to be. It's as if Jesus was saying, you are only going to face the wrath of God over my dead body. Who can stand against the wrath of God? By ourselves, no one. But if you come back next week, and I hope you will, you're going to meet a group of people not cowering in front of the Lamb, but praising him and worshipping him and saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. 
And you see that crowd, those are the people who recognise that they deserve absolutely nothing from God other than to be separated from him, but they have said, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for dying for me. And they're trusting him. And we find that by the end of the next chapter that God is wiping away every tear from their eyes. And they're going to be part of that wonderful new creation that John tells us about right at the end of the book. When all suffering will be removed forever and all evil will be removed forever. But God won't remove us because Jesus died for us. And because he did, we can be part of it. So the question for you this morning and as you go out into the week is are you trusting the lamb who was slain? None of us are worthy to stand in the presence of God. Only in him, only in him, can we do that. But we can do it with confidence, with absolute security. And so we're going to praise him now for his amazing grace. Let's pray. Loving Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. We pray for grace to trust him. And that in all the ups and downs of life, that we would have confidence that one day we will be with you forever because of him.